Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Um, I want you to read for me, if you don't mind. And let's read all together in unison. All the fellas, I need all the bass in your voice. My man right there with the black shirt, I need all the bass in your voice, player. All right? Um, I'm every man reading loud. Donnie, that means you. All right? Her, put a little bass in your chest. All right? Let's read. Let's read. All right? Let's turn it up. Ready? Read. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time today, God. We pray that we can tackle this subject matter full on, God. I pray that we be transformed by it as people, individuals, God, and also corporately, Father. And so, Lord, I just pray today that you do work in our hearts, do work in our minds, God, that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I'm just praying today, God, that this would change, radically change our church, God, that we would be able to do so much more, God, because of the faithfulness of your people. And so, Father, let us not narrow this down to a simple subject matter, God, but let us see this in the grand picture of what you're doing in the world, God. And so, Father, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for every family, God. I thank you for every individual, Lord. I just, I just pray you would do something on our behalf this morning, God. And just free us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Give on Mission. Give on mission. Well, this story that we read this morning began when someone came up with a great idea to help some poor Christians in Jerusalem. They they were experiencing some hardship because of persecution. 
these people in this early time of Christianity um, decided to follow this new faith in Christ Jesus. But with that came a lot of persecution and oppression. And so with that following Jesus, these people lost a lot. They lost jobs. They lost houses. Some of them, their lives were ravaged because they decided to follow Jesus. But there were some other Christians who heard about this, primarily those who were in the church at, at Corinth, which is in an area called Achaia. Corinth is the capital of a region called Achaia. They are a well-to-do church. They have great resources. There's a lot of business done in this area called Corinth. And so there's a church there. There are several churches actually in this area, and they make a decision that we are going to help our brothers and sisters in Christ, although they're not a part of our local body. We're going to help Christians somewhere else because we understand the concept of that Christ. Church is actually a body and we are all one family of brothers and sisters. So what happens to other churches in other places, although I may not have ever visited there, it matters to me because those are my brothers and sisters in the world, in the body of Christ. And so they just, they, they exhibit this great response to someone else's struggle and someone else's plight. And so they showed signs of being a healthy church simply because they cared about other Christians and other Christians well-being. They were able to look beyond their self, themselves and their own problems and their own lives and they actually desire to help other people with their own resources. And so this was a good and godly characteristic for this church to care about other people. And so the apostle Paul saw this and Paul started bragging about the church at Corinth to the churches in a place called Macedonia. In Macedonia, there's some churches, if you're taking notes, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those are churches in an area called Macedonia, but they are impoverished. They are struggling for real, for real. They are facing persecution, and so they don't have a lot of resources, but the church in Corinth does, but Paul tells the churches in Macedonia, yo, Corinth is is about to help the churches in Jerusalem. And so he just is telling them this, but they're like, we struggling, but we still want to do something. We struggling, but we still have a desire to help other people. And so these churches were just as in worse condition as the churches in Jerusalem. They were impoverished themselves. They suffered under Roman persecution and they might have lost everything to follow Jesus as well. However, although they were in a struggle, although their circumstances were difficult, they still felt compelled to help other the people when in them when themselves in the natural they couldn't even help their own situation and so the reason the churches wanted to give was because Paul told them about Corinth and so Paul tells them about Corinth and they're like okay well if they're gonna do it then we're gonna get in too and so we're gonna do just what they're doing because we care about other Christians as well and so they got inspired and they started giving extravagantly they started giving generously they started giving uh, sacrificially and in a church uh, like Macedonia serves as a prototype for us of what sacrificial generosity looks like if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it will blow your mind about this church and the characteristics that they displayed in actually giving sacrificially, although they were on the struggle bus. It says a lot about their character, and they are a corporate example of what sacrificial generosity is. I want to read to you uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. If you have a Bible, you turn back one chapter. Here's what it says in the first five verses about the Macedonian churches who are poor. It says this, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the 
grace of God. You should probably highlight that about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. I just told you they're on the struggle bus. They're poor. They ain't got a lot of money. But he says, I want you to know about the grace that was given to the churches of Macedonia during a severe trial brought about by affliction. Their abundant joy and their not just regular poverty, extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that they gave according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord. That means he didn't have to ask them to do it. They begged us. This is this church on lost their mind. They on the struggle bus. They struggling and they begging to be able to help somebody else that's in the same predicament that they're in. And so they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That's crazy. That don't make no sense in a natural, that, that makes no sense. Extreme poverty, but overflowing in a wealth of generosity. Extreme poverty, but giving to their means and then beyond their means. Extreme poverty, but they're asking earnestly, how can we be giving to somebody else? That makes no, no sense. And so the paradox is how can a group of people that experience extreme poverty give in a wealth of generosity? That doesn't make any sense. How can that happen? I'll tell you how that happens. It doesn't happen in the natural. It happens by the grace of God. It happens by the grace of God. The grace to give generously is God given. The grace to give generously is God, God given. You cannot do it in your own power. I cannot do it in my own power. There has to be a measure of grace that is given to us by God in order for us to be generous givers. And so besides the churches at Macedonia being the corporate example of what it means to give sacrificially extravagantly, they show us that giving oftentimes can be contagious. They heard about another church and they hopped in. They dived in the deep end of the pool. They literally just said, we win it then. And so you see generosity right here in the Bible being contagious. It's being contagious. You ever have somebody inspire you to do something that they themselves don't complete? Think about this. We go into the gym. We're going to start working out. You coming with me? Look, I lost five pounds already. And you're like, oh, for real? I ain't going to just let you lose all the weight. I want to lose some weight, too. And so they like, we were going to the gym. Y'all go to the gym one time. And then you, you show up the next day, and they're not there. And you're still going. And it's two weeks later. And you call them. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm headed to the gym. You, you going to be there? Nah. Nah, I ain't going to be able to make it. And it's... A month later, you still at the gym and they inspired you, but they fell off somehow. And you go into the it's about to be lit. You go into the spot. You go into the thing. It's about to be lit. You're like, oh, for real? I wasn't going to go. Hang on. I don't really feel like going, man. It's going to be lit. You know, going to be there. And you're like, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. You get dressed, right? Because it's 11 o'clock. You get ready to leave, right? And, and you call you call your, your homeboy, homegirl, like, you ready? And they're like. Ooh, child, I'm tired. Like, wait a minute, I done got dressed. You done told me who's going to be there. It's going to be lit. And you at home in the bed? And so somebody can inspire you, inspire you, and they themselves don't do what they inspired you to do. And so this is exactly what happened. Because at a point in time, the Corinthian church, they eventually fell out with the apostle Paul. They fell out with the pastor. Imagine that a church who falls out with their leader. And so Paul wrote them a letter 
1 Corinthians, which happens to be before 2 Corinthians, if you read your Bible. And so he writes them a letter, 1 Corinthians. He visits them after he writes the letter to them. So there's a gap between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He goes and visits them. They wilding, they off the chain. They doing all kind of crazy stuff. He confronts them, calls them on the carpet, tells them they need to get their stuff together. And what do they do? They don't just straighten up. They get mad at the pastor. They get offended by him. And they're like, well, we ain't doing what no, no, no. And so he leaves, right? And so he understands that they out there wild and they're not doing nothing. So Paul writes a scathing rebuke. He writes another letter that we don't have in circulation. So it's two letters, uh, three letters actually that he wrote to Corinth. We got 1 Corinthians, we got 2 Corinthians, but there's a middle letter where Paul was probably cussing them out. Paul cusses them out. And so they received the letter. And so Paul is like, I ain't going back there because I know what I just wrote and I probably don't, I'm probably going to have a fight if I go there. So he sends a guy named Titus. He sends Titus to the church. Titus shows up to the church and guess what? They got their act together. Paul writes them a scathing rebuke. The Holy Spirit must have convicted their hearts. They get their stuff together. They repent of their sins. They get their act right. And guess what? Now they now have an affinity again for the Apostle Paul. And they now like him again. They can receive from him again because he, as a pastor, had to do the responsibility to correct the saints. What does that have to do with money? Nothing. I thought it was a great point to make. <laughs> thought I should insert that into the text because it's there. And so Titus comes back like, Paul, they got it together, brother. Your letter worked. They cool in the game. They stop wilding. They ain't tripping no more. Um, but there's one thing I got to tell you, Paul. Um, remember that collection that they were doing for the other saints that they was inspiring other people to do? Paul's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, player. They started and then they stopped. They filled out them pledge cards. They made commitments. But man, they just like stopped midway. They made $750 pledges and Ones made seven fifty, they probably gave like ten dollars, and they stopped because they fell out with you, Paul. And Paul's like, man. And so there's a point I want to make here. Um, if you're ever going to grow into a generous giver, there'll be things that will distract you from giving to God. And you never give to God solely based on another person. You give to God based off of God. You don't cut your nose off to spite your face, which means this. You stopping giving because you mad at somebody at the church doesn't hurt the people at the church. It actually hurts your walk with God. And so this is what happens. And so that's number one, that, that there are, will be distractions, but, but generous givers must be disciplined givers. They must determine in their hearts to give no matter what. And then secondly, they have to prepare that the distractions will come. Something will break. Something will go out. A tire will get flat. Transmission will go out. You will need a new engine. Something will happen to your car. It is going to happen. You will get behind on some bill. You will have to be in the hospital. God forbid, you, something will happen and you're going to have to pay somebody something and it's going to seem like it's going to throw you off. Give anyway. Give anyway. And so finish what you started. And here's what Paul says in the first five, five verses. He says, now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know, here's what Paul is saying to Corinth, because he remembers the commitment they made in 1 Corinthians when he wrote them. He says, I know your eagerness, but here's, why, here's, here's the rub. I boast about you to the Macedonians. Paul was bragging on the Corinthian church to the Macedonians. He was telling them, 
how generous they were. Like, yo, Corinth, they're killing it. They're killing it over there. He's bragging on them. And so here's what Paul says. Your zeal stirred up most of them. Your zeal stirred them up. But I'm sending a brother so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty. And so that you would be ready, just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, will be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift, not as an extortion. Here's what's happening. Paul sends a delegation to Corinth to collect the offering. He sends Titus and two other unnamed brothers that are trustworthy. Paul is sending them there so that they can help them get the offering together. The first reason Paul sends this delegation to go collect the offering was because of financial accountability. He knows that it's probably going to be a large sum of money, and he doesn't want anybody accusing him of stealing the money if something goes awry. So he doesn't want to put his hands on it. He just wants to admonish them to do it. But he sends administratively some other people to go to help with collecting and preparing the offering. The second thing is he wanted them to prepare it in advance. Giving generously is not something that you do on a whim. It's something that you pray through and think through. And, and, and besides that, now look, if you want to give spontaneously, if God ever tells you at some point, I want to give a certain amount of money, then do what God tells you to do if he wants to give you spontaneously. But what he's saying is you should be able to prepare in advance and think through before you get to church on Sunday morning. How am I going to give towards God? Am I going to give based off the sermon? I wasn't feeling what he said today. He didn't preach on my favorite subject. They didn't sing my song today. I ain't really feeling it today. So this is how I'm going to give. He says, prepare in advance what you're going to give. And the two most important things why Paul sends the delegation is embarrassment. And then he wants it to be a gift. Why embarrassment? Remember this. They fell out with Paul. Paul's been bragging on them. And Paul writes a a letter. They get to act together. And Paul finds out about it. Titus comes back and tells them, they're good. We're cool. Everything's settled. Everything good. But the offering ain't right. And Paul said, ooh, they're not mad at me no more? He's like, no, they're not mad at you no more. Cool. So we just got back straight. But he's already promised the churches in Jerusalem that he's going to bring an offering. And so Paul is now in this awkward situation where we just got back reconciled, but I need to talk to you about money. It's kind of like if you ain't got no money and you need to borrow $100 from somebody, from your mom, but y'all just got out of, y'all just was arguing like two days ago. And it probably feel a little uncomfortable, like, yeah, I know we was just like fussing. Can I borrow $5? That's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Because you just feel out, and I don't really know how you really feel about, I don't know if we good, good, or we kind of good. And so Paul is in this awkward situation where I need to have a money conversation with you, but we just fell out. And so this, put, this is the tension in the text that Paul is going to approach the conversation anyway because Paul doesn't want to be embarrassed. Paul has already promised and bragged about them, and he doesn't want to come because Paul is eventually coming himself with two people from the church of Macedonia to collect the offering. So when they get to Corinth, Paul is going to show up with two people from the Macedonian churches, the people who are impoverished. They're going to show up with Paul to help Paul collect the offering for the Jerusalem saints. And so Paul doesn't want to be embarrassed when he gets there. It's kind of like you brag on your kid. He could count to 10. He only two and he could count to 10. 
He can count to 10. They've been telling y'all, he can count to 10. Little Joey can count to 10. I promise you can count to 10. He can say his ABCs. He can say all of me clear and everything. Be like, oh, okay, when I come over there, he can say, I'm, I'm going to have him count to 10 for you. I'm going to show you what little Joey can do. And the mom say, little Joey, count to 10. Mm. Mm. Joey, say your ABCs. Mm-mm-mm. Like, Lord have mercy, I've been bragging on this child, and now he, he decides to turn into this kind of kid. And the, pa- the parent is embarrassed because you've been bragging on your child and what your child can do. And now you're like, man, this boy didn't embarrass me. I've been telling people, probably think my, my kid can't even read. <laughs> and so Paul is in this situation because if they come, he's going to be embarrassed if they don't have that offering together. See, for you and I, if we don't do nothing, we don't fulfill a pledge, we don't keep our word, it don't mean nothing to us. We'll have no shame. But they live in an honor-shame culture where if you did not keep your word and you didn't say what you were going to do, what you said you were going to do, it meant that you lost dignity in the community. You had egg on your face. People would no longer take you seriously. And so your reputation was on the line if you did not keep your word. And so if you said you were going to do something in this culture, you had to do it or you would lose your reputation. But more important than that, he, Paul, is trying to help them preserve their reputation as being a gospel-believing people. Because if you say you're going to do something to help other Christians, that's a demonstration of the gospel. But if you don't do it, then it says something else about you. What would it say for the church that has more resources than the other churches to now be indifferent toward the missional impact that they can make to some other Christians. Here's what it'll do. It may communicate that they don't understand or simply that they do not even believe the gospel. So we say that we are believers and we love God and we believe God and we trust Jesus for our salvation. It will reflect in every area of your life, including your finances. We're a gospel believing church. We preach the Bible. Do we really preach it or do we preach it or just preach it or do we preach it and do we believe it as well? Because if we believe it as well, it would, it, would dis, it would be displayed in how we respond to God in all areas of our life, including our finances. And so here's what Paul says. Go ahead and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift, not an extortion. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 5 is that he calls the gift something. He describes the gift. He doesn't just say the gift. He says the generous gift. The generous gift. Generous means this. Simple. It means blessing. The word generous there means blessing. Why is it a blessing? And why is it generous? Because it's something that's freely given to other people. It's freely given. It's freely given and it's given in abundance. A generous gift is one that is freely given and given in abundance. It's given in abundance. And so what makes it generous is that it models after the way God has blessed us. That God didn't just give us a gift. God gave us an abundance of gifts. God didn't just save you. God blessed you down. God gave you more than you even knew what to ask for. We model our giving after God who doesn't just give us one thing. God gives us multiple things. What are you talking about, Pastor? God saved us and he gave us a new life. He didn't just give us a new life. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He didn't just give us the Holy Spirit. He gave us a family called the church. He didn't just give us a church. He gave us spiritual gifts to operate and be a blessing to the family. He didn't just do that. He also gave us a promise of the return of his son. God gave us more than what we needed and more than what we asked for. God blessed us. 
God has blessed us. God has done abundantly more than we could ask or think. And so what makes it a blessing is that it was in abundance and that it was a gift. A gift is something that is given freely, not something that's extorted from you. <sighs> Giving generously is not when the pastor treats the offering like you're at, like you're at an auction. All right, we need a thousand. I need ten to give a thousand. I need ten to give a thousand. I need five to give five hundred. I need five to give five hundred. I need six to give a thousand. I need six to give a thousand. Or better yet, we're not leaving until we get this number. That ain't generous giving. That's extortion. That's a bank robbery. That's mafioso. And so giving should not be something that is forced. Look, I get it. If, if, the, if the budget needs to be met and times are tight, I can see why a pastor would feel the pressure to do things like that, especially if bills got to be paid and he wants to make sure that the church is going to be open next week. But here's the thing. Where do we trust God in this matter? And so giving generously is not something that is forced. It is not something that is forced. We should never feel pressure to give. However, Caveat, we should not feel pressure to give. I know you're like, oh, thank God. Ooh, I can just do my little dollar and holler. I know that's what you're thinking. I know that's what you're thinking, right? I know that's what you're thinking. We should never feel pressure to give. However, because we've been saved, we should feel compelled to give. And we should feel compelled to give generously because God has given generously to us. And so, Paul wants them to know, I ain't trying to impoverish you. I'm trying to get you to see that you're responding out of the richness that God has already given you. So I want to say this. Don't get mad at me when I say this. But you hear me in the spirit. The size of the gift matters. Crickets. Prove it, Pastor. God would never say the size matters. Oh, really? I'm glad you asked. Verses 6 through 9. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. I didn't write that on my way to church in the Bible. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. However, caveat, each person should do as he has decided. Where? In his heart. Not reluctantly or out of compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And when you do give, here's what he's saying in verse 8, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything that you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, verse 9, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The size of the gift matters, Pastor, according to the measure of a resor the resources a person has. So, it does matter. According to the measure of resources that an individual has or a family has. So, what does that look like? I made $100,000 this year. I gave $2,000 to the Lord. If my math serves me correct, 
I know y'all do that new math. The old math says that's not generous. I made $60,000 this year. And you get your giving statement. You're like, ooh, I made $60,000, $60,000. And you look at your giving statement. And you gave 2000 to the church. I don't know about your math. That math don't say generous. That math says I did it when I felt like how I felt like it and not out of response to the gospel. So the gift matters according to the measure a person has. It does matter. But here's a beautiful thing. They use this, this, this agriculture analogy that they would have understood because they lived in the agricultural society. And so they talked and they knew that if I put a little seed in the ground, I'm not going to get much from it. That, that's, just the, that's just the law of nature. That, that's, that's, that's just the reality. If I put one seed, I shouldn't expect something supernatural to happen. So if I sow small, I know as a farmer, as a person who's engaged in agriculture, that I shouldn't expect a lot to come back. I know if I put a lot of seeds in the ground, just naturally speaking, I can expect that the harvest is going to be in proportion to what I put in the ground. That sounds charismatic, and I don't want you to hear that because they've literally tainted and made filthy the, 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 the sowing and the reaping, right? And, and so here's what I want you to know. The size does matter, but the point is not I'm giving just so I can get something back. That's where the rub lies. I'm not putting a lot of seed in the ground just so I can get a lot of harvest back. That's not why I'm doing it, because if you do it that way, you just turn your relationship with God into something transactional. That's where the rub lies. But I'm giving based off of me knowing that God has given a lot to me. And so that's where it comes from. And so when he says, if you sow sparingly, you know what the word sparingly means there? It means greed. It means greed. It don't just mean you just... Neutralist giving a little bit, it means you're literally being greedy. If you sow greedily, here's what you need to know about greedy people. Greedy people and stingy people never get ahead. There's two outcomes for greedy and stingy people. Prison, or they never get ahead. The struggle is a lifetime. And so here's what we tend to think, that if we hold on real tight, and I take all I can and I never give anything, I'm going to get ahead at some point. That never works for anybody. Here's the thing, and some of this is cultural. Some of us have to realize this. Some of us have been raised and trained to have a scarcity mindset that we got to hold on for dear life every dollar we got. We don't buy name brand anything. Juice. Cola, grape, strawberry. Red. We don't buy sugar. Right. We don't buy neighbor. That's scarcity. Because what it says is we have to hold on because nothing, nothing else is ever going to come. But if somebody wanted to put something in my hand because I'm so tight-fisted, they can't get in there. Only when they peel back my fingers is my hand open to receive anything. And some of us live like this. And God's like, even the hand of God can rustle the tightness on your fist. 
and you thinking you're going to get ahead and stuff is breaking and stuff is falling apart and you're behind and you're 30 days late and your credit score is bad because you're holding on for dear life. Not until you switch from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset does the cycle of poverty start to break. I'm not, tr- I'm not teaching you naming and claiming. That ain't what I'm saying here. Don't hear that. But what I'm saying, saying is, is that when people give more, they tend to have more. You don't get ahead by giving less. You get ahead by giving more. That's how that works. And so we have to shift our mind from scarcity to abundance. And not your abundance. It's not your abundance that you're depending on. That's the beautiful thing about it. it ain't your, it's your scarcity, but it's actually God's abundance. It's God's abundance. Here's what it says in Proverbs 11:24. Here's what it says, if you don't believe me. Give freely and become more wealthy. Ain't that a novel idea? Be stingy and lose everything. Wow. I've been thinking all this time, if I just take a couple shortcuts, if I give less, they, nobody knows because it's between me and God. Let me tell you something. Your giving is personal, but it ain't private. It's personal, but it ain't private. And so the proportion of what we give tends to be what we receive, but it could be in different areas of our life and not just financially. So I want to bring you back to this. Here's what it says in verse 7. A person has to give generously from what they decided in their heart. It's a heart matter. It's a heart matter. And so a decision to be generous has to come from a decision that is made from a heart that has been redeemed by God. A heart that has been renewed and made new by God. Here's the thing. When God saved you, he didn't just save you from big societal sins like fornication, drugs, drunkenness. God also saved us from greed. Do you know that greed ain't just a rich problem? That poor people are actually some of the greediest people you ever meet in your life? And God saved us from that too. He saved us from serving money as our master. We get transformed from being tight-fisted to being open-handed. And as we grow in our faith, our stewardship should increase with it. So we get this. We see now why God loves a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver is one that is glad that God has saved them. A cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful is hilarious. You know what hilarious means? It's where we get our English word hilarious from. God loves a hilarious giver. When's the last time you laugh with joy because you're about to give in church? <laughs> I could wait to get here and give sacrificially. Or is it, oh, Lord, here's the time of service. Your flesh is like, just walk out now. Just walk out now. You have to pee. You have to pee now. You have to pee. The music is playing. Their eyes are closed and he's praying. You know that section of the sermon where he says, all eyes closed, heads bowed. Now is the time to make your move. <laughs> Do it now and no one will notice. You won't have to give. Do it. You know that your bank account has only $30 in it. What are you going to do? You don't get paid until Friday. Leave now. You're going to be broke.
And these are the conversations we have in our head because we don't realize that even in that $30, God is not saying give me all the 30. Maybe he is, but what really God is saying is you still give me generously out of that 30. So we want people to disciple us as Christians. Well, I want you to disciple me in my relationships. I keep getting bad relationships. Would you disciple me in my career? Because I need to know what career path I should take. Can you disciple me in my family life? My fa- I'm having issues with my, my family. But we close off our hearts to discipleship about our finances. You, you don't want nobody to enter in that space of your life. Like, you need to get a job. Oh. Should I? Yeah, yeah, you should get a job. Yeah, 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 you should get, get a job. Why you never have no money? You eat out every day of the week? Yeah. You should stop. You go, wait a minute, you go to the movies every week and you spend $40? But when you come to church, you... We don't want anybody to to disciple us through our financial brokenness. But God is like, all of it should be open because sacrificial generosity is a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what it says, verses 8 through 9. We're almost getting there. He says this, if you are generous, I love this, and you should love this too. If you are generous, if you are generous, here's what it says in verse 8 through 9. And God is able... God is able to make every grace overflow to you in every way, always having everything you need. You may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. What are they saying? God is able because God is the source of all human generosity. Generosity doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It comes from God, and God will make his grace overflow to you. God will supply the generous person with the finances necessary to do every good work, which in this case is being generous. It's God giving. It's God's doing. God makes us able to do it. God frees us from from the, the idol of money, and it frees us to give on mission. You know, there's a statistic and it's a real statistic that says churches or Christians, I'm sorry, not churches, but Christians. On average, give from 2.8 to about 3 percent of their income, 2.8 to 3 percent, 2.8 to 3 percent. That is a travesty. What could the church do if the members actually stopped trying to do the bare minimum? The church don't do nothing. Don't say the church don't do anything because you're part of the church. Just say, I don't do nothing. And so we, we have, what kind of impact could my finances make, God's finances make, what kind of impact would it make if I properly stewarded what he gave me? What if I stop shooting for the bare minimum? What if I grew in my faith, but I'm also growing in my stewardship? What if I'm reorienting my life, not around my bills or what I got to buy next? What if I reorient my life around how can I prioritize giving to God first and then live off the rest? But no, we do this. Okay, I need to do all this stuff. Okay, let's see what I got left to give God. And that's not generosity that God calls us to. 
that, exhibited greed, that exhibits greed. And I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to open your mind. Trying to open your mind. You know, we like to quote one of these favorite scriptures. You know, one of the Macedonian churches, and I'm about done. One of the Macedonian churches, I told you at the outset, was Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. In your Bible, in the New Testament, there's a book called Philippians. See, it's called Philippi. The people are called Philippians because they live in Philippi. And we love to quote our favorite scripture in Philippians. Now, mind you, at the outset, I told you the Macedonian churches who gave out of the extreme poverty and full flow of wealth and generosity was Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Philippians is one of the Macedonian churches who are extremely impoverished. So when Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi, Paul understands something. So now you get a context of why Paul is writing. And so Philippians 4.13, I know that because it's my birthday, shameless plug. I know this by heart, and we say it because we believe it's going to make us dunk a basketball. We say it because we believe that it's going to help us pass an exam that we didn't study for. We believe it because it's going to help us get through a work day when we know we should have went to bed, but we stayed up at 2 a.m. And so we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That scripture is in the context of churches giving out of their poverty. That has nothing to do with you dunking. That has nothing to do with you having to deal with a coworker that you don't like. That has everything to do with your finances. And so, if God is powerful enough to make them overflow in generosity, God is also faithful enough to not abandon them when they give. God is more faithful than you and I. Last five verses. Now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saint, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the proof provided by this ministry, because of the proof provided by this ministry, here's what will happen. The other Christians will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have a deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God provides what we need to be generous and he increases the harvest of, of our righteousness. And what Paul is saying is that generosity is a proof of the righteousness of God that we have in Christ Jesus. It is the result of us living out the righteousness that God has declared to us in Christ. This is simply growing us in another area of our walk in our relationship with God. We give out of the overflow of what God has already done through us in Christ Jesus. You don't give as the old you. You give as the new you. You give as the new you. So I got four points. Point number one, God grows us through generosity. God grows us through generosity. Point number two, because of their giving, the church at Macedonia was thankful. Point number two, God gets thanked through our generosity. God gets thanked through our generosity. Point number three, God proves our faith is real through our generosity. God proves our faith is real through our generosity. Here's what you need to know before I go to point four. 
The, the reason Paul doesn't have to force them to give is because Paul figures that they understand the nature of the gospel. I don't have to force somebody to give that understands why they're giving. It's a sign of the work of God and salvation in their lives. They know that it is not something they do in their own power. They know that they are sinners and sin stops us from doing everything, including giving. But if I have God's grace, if I'm living out of God's grace, if I'm living from the position of being righteous in Christ Jesus, I know that I don't No one has to make me give. If the pastor never gives up and gives an offering appeal, I give anyway. I actually look for an opportunity to give. I don't even let I don't even leave church without saying how, 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 whoa, 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 they forgot the offering. Would you do that if I didn't take up the offering? No, don't worry about it. <laughs> Number four, God is glorified through our generosity. God is glorified through our generosity. Here's why. Our giving is an expression of God's grace towards us. That's all this is about. It's about the great. The giving ain't about the people that are giving. The giver is about the ultimate giver, which is God. This is the story of God's overflowing grace and abundance towards us as believers. It's really trying to show us that we are modeling after what God did for us. God gave us the most gracious gift when he revealed to us his son, Christ Jesus, and sent him to die for us and resurrected him to life so that we can have eternal life. We respond from that posture. That was God's grace to us. That was God's grace to undeserving, unrepentant, unrighteous sinners. God says, I'm going to send my son and give the most precious prized possession that I have to save them. How do you respond to the person that has given you not just anything, but gave you everything? How do you respond? Do you nickel and dime them? Or do you give like you have been given? The pre-existing son of God, I'm done. Jesus. God in the flesh. Left the Opulence, extravagant, beautiful, pristine, flawless, excellent. Heaven to come down and sit in our poverty. He entered into our impoverished place so that he could make us rich, not financially, spiritually. And when you're spiritually rich, your giving reflects those spiritual riches. But some of us give like God gave us his poverty. And God didn't give you poverty. God gave you all of his riches. Jesus emptied himself to the point of death on, on the cross for you and I. So when I give, I ain't like, gross and net, shut up. <laughs> because if we really want to be tithers, no one ever just tithed 10%. There were multiple tithes in the Old Testament. They tithe off of oil and grain and mint 
and cumin and dill. And there was the annual tithe. And there was a tithe for every three years. So actually, when you total up their tithe, they gave over 30% of their income. You still want to tithe? As a Christian, tithing is good. It's healthy. It's good. So it's a wonderful spiritual discipline. You should do it. But that's the floor. Where is God growing you to? And if you're over leveraged in your life, then you have somebody to come and disciple you through that, to hold you accountable. But don't use your bad financial management as an excuse not to give to God. Because at the end of the day, God is going to say, I never told you to do what you did with your finances. I didn't tell you to not manage it properly. I told you in my word that the borrower is servant to the lender. I said that. And so God wants us to be free from the master of money. And he wants us to serve him. But he wants us to do it generously. It's a part of our walk with God, our walk with Christ. You cannot separate your money from your discipleship and your relationship with Jesus. It's not a thing. And when we give, it doesn't just bless us. It blesses others. That's why we give on mission. What if everybody in the outpouring did just more, did more than the bare minimum? What would it look like? What would it look like? But right now, it's like we're limited because, because not everybody, everybody's heart has been captured by the gospel. We give because we've first been given to. God gave to us first. And he gave to you in your most desperate time. And we respond from that. We respond from that. And when we all get on one accord and we're all giving, man, we can change the world from right here. We don't need thousands. Although we would like them. We don't need them. And I'm done. I read one. I'm going to give you one statistic because I'm on a tangent at the end of my sermon. I read an article by a guy who wrote a book on generosity in churches. And he said, whatever the giving is in your church, that's not the reality. To understand the potential capacity that your church has to give, multiply what they give by four. And that's what's sitting in your congregation. So if your church brought in 100,000, you really have 400,000. If your church brought in 250, you know there's a million dollars of potential sitting in your congregation. And that's not everybody giving all they have. That's people just being generous. What kind of church will we be and what kind of believers will we be? Will we respond to the gospel? I'm done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for everything that's been said. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.